Hey y'all, welcome back for the final part in Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. I'm going to start this one out with the chapter, The Ferryman. I will remain by this river, thought Siddhartha. It is the same river which I crossed on my way to the town. A friendly ferryman took me across. I will go to him. My path once led from his hut to a new life which is now old and dead. May my present path, my new life, start from there. He looked lovingly into the flowing water, into the transparent green, into the crystal lines of its wonderful design. He saw bright pearls rise from the depths, bubbles swimming on the mirror, sky blue reflected in them. The river looked at him with a thousand eyes, green, white, crystal, sky blue. How he loved this river, how it enchanted him, how grateful he was to it. In his heart he heard the newly awakened voice speak and it said to him, love this river, stay by it, learn from it. Yes, he wanted to learn from it. He wanted to listen to it. It seemed to him that whoever understood this river and its secrets would understand much more, many secrets, all secrets. But today he only saw one of the river's secrets, one that gripped his soul. He saw that the water continually flowed and flowed, and yet it was always there. It was always the same, and yet every moment it was new. Who could understand, conceive this? He did not understand it. He was only aware of a dim suspicion, a faint memory, divine voices. Siddhartha rose. The pangs of hunger were becoming unbearable. He wandered painfully along the riverbank, listened to the rippling of the water, listened to the gnawing hunger in his body. When he reached the ferry, the boat was already there and the ferryman, who had once taken the young Samana across, stood in the boat. Siddhartha recognized him. He had also aged very much. Will you take me across? he asked. The ferryman, astonished to see such distinguished-looking man alone and on foot, took him into the boat and set off. You have chosen a splendid life, said Siddhartha. It must be fine to live near this river and sail on it every day. The rower smiled, swaying gently. It is fine, sir, as you say, but it is not every life. It but is not every life, every work, fine. Maybe, but I envy you yours. Oh, you would soon lose your taste for it. It is not for people in fine clothes. Siddhartha laughed. I have already been judged by my clothes today and regarded with suspicion. Will you accept these clothes from me, which I find a nuisance? For I must tell you that I have no money to pay you for taking me across the river. The gentleman is joking, laughed the ferryman. I am not joking, my friend. You once previously took me across this river without payment, so please do it today also and take my clothes instead. And will the gentleman continue without clothes? I should prefer not to go further. I should prefer it if you would give me some old clothes and keep me here as your assistant, or rather your apprentice, for I must learn how to handle the boat. The ferryman looked keenly at the stranger for a long time. I recognize you, he said finally. You once slept in my hut. It is a long time ago, maybe more than twenty years ago. I took you across the river and we parted good friends. Were you not a Samana? I cannot remember your name. My name is Siddhartha and I was a Samana when you last saw me. You are welcome, Siddhartha. My name is Vasudeva. I hope you will be my guest today and also sleep in my hut. 
and tell me where you have come from and why you are so tired of your fine clothes. They had reached the middle of the river, and Vasudeva rode more strongly because of the current. He rode calmly with strong arms, watching the end of the boat. Siddhartha sat and watched him and remembered how once, in those last Samana days, he had felt affection for this man. He gratefully accepted Vasudeva's invitation. When they reached the river bank, he helped him to secure the boat. Then Vasudeva led him into the hut, offered him bread and water, which Siddhartha ate with enjoyment, as well as the mango fruit which Vasudeva offered him. Later, when the sun was beginning to set, they sat on a tree trunk by the river, and Siddhartha told him about his origin and his life, and how he had seen him today after the hour of despair. The story lasted late into the night. Vasudeva listened with great attention. He heard all about his origin and childhood, about his studies, his seekings, his pleasures and needs. It was one of the ferryman's greatest virtues that, like few people, he knew how to listen. Without his saying a word, the speaker felt that Vasudeva took in every word, quietly, expectantly, that he missed nothing. He did not await anything with impatience and gave neither praise nor blame. He only listened. Siddhartha felt how wonderful it was to have such a listener who could be absorbed in another person's life, his strivings, his sorrows. However, towards the end of Siddhartha's story, when he told him about the tree by the river and his deep despair, about the holy Om, and how after his, he slept, he felt such a love for the river, the ferryman listened with doubled attention, completely absorbed, his eyes closed. When Siddhartha had finished, and there was a long pause, Vasudeva said, It is as I thought. The river has spoken to you. It is friendly towards you, too. It speaks to you. That is good, very good. Stay with me, Siddhartha, my friend. I once had a wife. Her bed was at the side of mine, but she died long ago. I have lived alone for a long time. Come and live with me. There is room and food for us, for both of us. I thank you, said Siddhartha. I thank you and accept. I also thank you, Vasudeva, for listening so well. There are few people who know how to listen, and I have not met anybody who can do so like you. I will also learn from you in this respect. You will learn it, said Vasudeva, but not from me. The river has taught me to listen. You will learn from it, too. The river knows everything. One can learn everything from it. You have already learned from the river that it is good to strive downwards, to sink, to seek the depths. The rich and distinguished Siddhartha will become a rower. Siddhartha, the learned Brahmin, will become a ferryman. You have also learned this from the river. You will learn the other thing, too. After a long pause, Siddhartha said, What other thing, Vasudeva? Vasudeva rose. It has grown late, he said. Let us go to bed. I cannot tell you what the other thing is, my friend. You will find out. Perhaps you already know. I am not a learned man. I do not know how to talk or think. I only know how to listen and be devout. Otherwise, I have learned nothing. If I could talk and teach, I would perhaps be a teacher. But as it is, I am only a ferryman, and it is m my task to take people across this river. I have taken thousands of people across, and to all of them my river has been nothing but a hindrance on their journey. They have traveled for money and business, to weddings and on pilgrimages. The river has been in their way, and the ferryman was there to take them quickly across the obstacle. 
however, amongst the thousands there have been a few, four or five, to whom the river was not an obstacle. They have heard its voice and listened to it, and the river has become holy to them, as it has to me. Let us now go to bed, Siddhartha. Siddhartha stayed with the ferryman and learned how to look after the boat, and then when there was nothing to do with the ferry, he worked on the rice field with Vasudeva, gathered wood and picked fruit from the banana trees. He learned how to make oars, how to improve the boat, and how to make baskets. He was pleased with everything that he did and learned, and the days and months passed quickly, but he learned more from the river than Vasudeva could teach him. He, le he learned from it continually. Above all, he learned from it how to listen, to listen with a still heart, with a waiting, open soul, without passion, without desire, without judgment, without opinions. He lived happily with Vasudeva, and occasionally they exchanged words, few and long-considered words. Vasudeva was no friend of words. Siddhartha was rarely successful in moving him to speak. He once asked him, Have you also learned that secret from the river, that there is no such thing as time? A bright smile spread over Vasudeva's face. Yes, Siddhartha, he said. Is this what you mean? That the river is everywhere at the same time, at the source and at the mouth, at the waterfall, at the ferry, at the current, in the ocean and in the mountains, everywhere. And that the present only exists for it, not the shadow of the past, nor the shadow of the future. That is it, said Siddhartha, and when I learned that, I reviewed my life, and it was also a river, and Siddhartha the boy, Siddhartha the mature man, and Siddhartha the old man, were only separated by shadows, not through reality. Siddhartha's previous lives were also not in the past, and his death and his return to Brahma are not in the future. Nothing was, nothing will be. Everything has reality and presence. Siddhartha spoke with delight. This discovery had made him very happy. Was then not all sorrow in time, all self-torment and fear in time? Were not all difficulties and evil in the world conquered as soon as one conquered time, as soon as one dispelled time? He had spoken with delight. Vasudeva just smiled radiantly at him and nodded his agreement. He stroked Siddhartha's shoulder and returned to his work. And once again, when the river swelled during the rainy season and roared loudly, Siddhartha said, Is it not true, my friend, that the river has very many voices? Has it not the voice of a king, of a warrior, of a bull, of a night bird, of a pregnant woman and a sighing man, and a thousand other voices? It is so, nodded Vas Vasudeva. The voices of all living creatures are in its voice. And do you know, continued Siddhartha, what word it pronounces when one is successful in hearing all its ten thousand voices at the same time? Vasudeva laughed joyously. He bent towards Siddhartha and whispered the holy Om in his ear, and this was just what Siddhartha had heard. As time went on, his smile began to resemble the ferryman's. It was almost equally radiant, almost equally full of happiness, equally lighting up through a thousand little wrinkles, equally childish, equally smile, senile. Many travelers, when seeing both ferrymen together, took them for brothers. Often they sat together in the evening on the tree trunk by the river. 
They both listened silently to the water, which to them was not just water, but the light, the voice of life, the voice of being, of perpetual becoming. And it sometimes happened that while listening to the river, they both thought the same thoughts, perhaps of a conversation of the previous day, or about one of the travelers whose fate and circumstances occupied their minds, or death, or their childhood. And when the river told them something good at the same moment, they looked at each other, both thinking the same thought, both happy at the same answer to the same question. Something emanated from the ferry and from both ferrymen that many of the travelers felt. It sometimes happened that a traveler, after looking at the face of one of the ferrymen, began to talk about his life and troubles, confessed sins, asked for comfort and advice, it sometimes happened that someone would ask permission to spend an evening with them in order to listen to the river. It also happened that curious people came along who had been told that two wise men, magicians or holy men, lived at the ferry. The curious ones asked many questions, but they received no replies, and they found neither mag magicians nor wise men. They only found two friendly old men who appeared to be mute, rather odd, and stupid. And the curious ones laughed and said how foolish and credible people were to spend to spread such wild rumors. The years passed and nobody counted them. Then one day, some monks came along, followers of Gautama, the Buddha, and asked to be taken across the river. The ferrymen learned from them that they were returning to the great teacher as quickly as possible, for the news had spread that the illustrious one was seriously ill and would soon suffer his last mortal death and attain salvation. Not long afterwards, another party of monks arrived, and then another, and then, and the monks as well as most of the other travelers talked of nothing but Katama and his approaching death. And as people came from all sides to a military expedition or to the crowning of a king, so did they gather together like swarms of bees drawn together by a magnet to go where the great Buddha was lying on his deathbed where this great event was taking place, and where the savior of an age was passing into eternity. Siddhartha thought a great deal at this time about the dying sage whose voice had stirred thousands, <clears throat> whose voice he had also once heard, whose holy countenance he had also once looked at with awe. He thought lovingly of him, remembered his path to salvation, and smiling, Remember the words he had once uttered as a young man to the illustrious one. It seemed to him that they had been arrogant and precious words. For a long time, he knew that he was not separated from Gotama, although he could not accept his teachings. No, a true seeker could not accept any teachings, not if he sincerely wished to find something. But he who had found could give his approval to every path, every goal. Nothing separated him from all the other thousands who lived in eternity, who breathed the divine. One day, when very many people were making a pilgrimage to the dying Buddha, Kamala, once the most beautiful of courtesans, was also on her way. She had long retired from her previous way of life, had presented her garden to Gautama's monks, taking refuge in his teachings, and belonged to the women and benefactresses attached to the pilgrims. On hearing of Gautama's approaching death, she had set off on foot, wearing simple clothes. Together with her son, they had reached the river on her way, but the boy soon became tired, 
He wanted to go home. He wanted to rest. He wanted to eat. He was often sulky and tearful. Kamala frequently had to rest with him. He was used to matching his will against hers. She had to feed him, comfort him, and scold him. He could not understand why his mother had to make this weary, miserable pilgrimage to an unknown place, to a strange man who was holy and was dying. Let him die. What did it matter to the boy? The pilgrims were not far from Vasudeva's ferry when little Siddhartha told his mother he wanted to rest. Kamala herself was tired, and while the boy ate a banana, she crouched down on the ground, half closed her eyes, and rested. Suddenly, however, she uttered a cry of pain. The boy, startled, looked at her and saw her face white with horror. From under her clothes, a small black snake, which had bitten Kamala, crawled away. They both ran on quickly in order to reach some people. When they were near the ferry, Kamala collapsed and could not go any further. The boy cried out for help, meantime kissing and embracing his mother. She also joined in his loud cries until the sounds reached Vasudeva, who was standing by the ferry. He came quickly, took the woman in his arms, and carried her to the boat. The boy joined him, and they soon arrived at the hut, where Siddhartha was standing, and was just lighting the fire. He looked up, and first saw the boy's face, which strangely reminded him of something. Then he saw Kamala, whom he recognized immediately, although she lay unconscious in the ferryman's arms. Then he knew that it was his own son's face had so reminded him of something, and his heart beat quickly. Kamala's wound was washed, but it was already black, and her body had swelled. She was given a restorative, and her consciousness returned. She was lying on Siddhartha's bed in his hut, and Siddhartha, whom she had once loved so much, was bending over her. She thought she was dreaming, and smiling, she looked into her lover's face. Gradually, she realized her condition, remembered the bite, and called anxiously for her son. Do not worry, said Siddhartha. He is here. Kamala looked into his eyes. She found it difficult to speak with the poison in her system. You have grown old, my dear, she said. You have become gray, but you are like the young Samara who once came to me in my garden without clothes and with dusty feet. You are much more like him than when you left Kamaswami and me. Your eyes are like his, said Hartha. Uh, I have also grown old. Old. Did you recognize me? Siddhartha smiled. I recognized you immediately, Kamala, my dear. Kamala indicated her son and said, Did you recognize him too? He is your son. Her eyes wandered and closed. The boy began to cry. Siddhartha put him on his knee, let him weep, weep, and stroked his hair. Looking at the child's face, he remembered a Brahmin prayer, which he had once learned when he himself was a small child. Slowly and in a singing voice, he began to recite it. The words came back to him out of the past and his childhood. The child became quiet as he recited still stopped a little and then fell asleep. Siddhartha put him on Vasudeva's bed. Vasudeva stood by the hearth cooking rice. Siddhartha looked at Vasudeva and smiled at him. She is dying, said Siddhartha softly. Vasudeva nodded. The firelight from the hearth was reflected in his kind face. Kamala again regained consciousness. There was pain in her face. 
said Arthur read the pain on her mouth and her pallid face. He read it quietly, attentively, waiting, sharing her pain. Kamala was aware of this. Her glance sought his. Looking at him, she said, Now I see that your eyes have also changed. They have become quite different. How do I recognize that you are still Siddhartha? You are Siddhartha, and yet you are not like him. Siddhartha did not speak. Silently, he looked into her eyes. Have you attained it? she asked. Have you found peace? He smiled and placed his hand on hers. Yes, she said. I see it. I also will find peace. You have found it, whispered Siddhartha. Kamala looked at him steadily. It had been her intention to make a pilgrimage to Gautama, to see the face of the illustrious one, to obtain some of his peace, and instead she had only found Siddhartha. And it was good, just as good as if she had seen the other. She wanted to tell him that, but her tongue no longer obeyed her will. Silently she looked at him, and he saw the life fade from her eyes. When the last pain had filled and passed from her eyes, when the last shudder had passed through her body, his fingers closed her eyelids. He sat there a long time looking at her dead face. For a long time he looked at her mouth, her old tired mouth and her shrunken lips, and remembered how once in the spring of his life he had compared her lips with a freshly cut fig. For a long time he looked intently at the pale face, at the tired wrinkles, and saw his own face like that, just as white, also dead, and at the same time he saw his face and hers, young, with red lips, with ardent eyes, and he was overwhelmed with the feeling of the present and contemporary existence. In this hour he felt more acutely the indestructibleness of every life, the eternity of every moment. When he rose, Vasudeva had prepared some rice for him, but Siddhartha did not eat. In the stable, where the goat was, the two old men straightened some straw, and Vasudeva lay down. But Siddhartha went outside, and sat in front of the hut all night, listening to the river, sunk in the past, simultaneously affected and encompassed by all the periods of his life. From time to time, however, he rose, walked to the door of the hut, and listened to hear if the boy were sleeping. Early in the morning, before the sun was yet visible, Vasudeva came out of the stable and walked up to his friend. You have not slept, he said. No, Vasudeva, I sat here and listened to the river. It has told me a great deal. It has filled me with many great thoughts. With thoughts of unity. You have suffered, said Hartha. Yet I see that sadness has not entered your heart. No, my dear friend, why should I be sad? Who was rich and happy and have become still richer and happier? My son has been given to me. I also welcome your son. But now, said Hartha, let us go to work. There is much to be done. Kamala died on the same bed where my wife died. We shall also build Kamala's funeral pyre on the same hill where I once built my wife's funeral pyre. While the boys still slept, they built the funeral pyre. The sun. Frightened and weeping, the boy had attended his mother's burial. Frightened and gloomy, he had listened to Siddhartha greeting him as his son 
making him welcome in Vasudeva's hut. For days on end he sat with a pale face on the hill of the dead, looked away, locked his heart, fought and strove against his fate. Siddhartha treated him with consideration and left him alone, for he respected his grief. Siddhartha understood that his son did not know him, that he could not love him as a father. Slowly, he also saw and realized that the eleven-year-old child was a spoilt mother's boy and had been brought up in the habits of the rich, but he was accustomed to fine food and a soft bed, accustomed to commanding servants. Siddhartha understood that the spoilt and grieving boy could not suddenly be content in a strange and poor place. He did not press him. He did a great deal for him and always saved the best morsels for him. Slowly, by friendly patience, he hoped to win him over. He had considered himself rich and happy when the boy had come to him. But as time passed, and the boy remained unfriendly and sulky, when he proved arrogant and defiant, when he would do no work, when he showed no respect to the old people and robbed Vasudeva's fruit tree, Siddhartha began to realize that no happiness and peace had come to him with his son only sorrow and trouble. But he loved him and preferred the sorrow and trouble of his love rather than happiness and pleasure without the boy. Since young Siddhartha was in the hut, the old men had shared the work. Vasudeva had taken over all the work at the ferry, and Siddhartha, in order to be with his son, the work in the hut and the fields. For many months Siddhartha waited patiently in the hope that his son would come to understand him, that he would accept his love, and that he would perhaps return it. For many months Vasudeva observed them, waited, and was silent. One day, when young Siddhartha was distressing his father with his defiance and temper, and had broken both rice bowls, Vasudeva took his friend aside in the evening and talked to him. Forgive me, he said. I am speaking to you as my friend. I can see that you are worried and unhappy. Your son, my dear friend, is troubling you and also me. The young bird is accustomed to, to a different life, to a different nest. He did not run away from riches and the town with a feeling of nausea and disgust as you did. He had to leave all these things against his will. And I have asked the river, my friend. I have asked it many times. And the river laughed. It laughed at me and it laughed at you. It shook itself with laughter at our folly. Water will go to water, youth to youth. Your son will not be happy in this place. You ask the river and listen to what it says. Troubled, Siddhartha looked at the kind face, in which there were many good-natured wrinkles. How can I part from him? He said softly. Give me time yet, my dear friend. I am fighting for him. I am trying to reach his heart. I will win him with love and patience. The river will also talk to him some day. He is also called. Vasu's Vasudeva's smile became warmer. Oh, yes, he said. He is also called. He also belongs to the everlasting life. But do you and I know to what he is called? To which path? Which deeds? Which sorrows? His sorrows will not be slight. His heart is proud and hard. He will probably suffer much, make many mistakes, do much injustice, and commit many sins. Tell me, my friend, are you educating your son? Is he obedient to you? Do you strike him or punish him? No, Vasudeva. I do not do any of these things. I knew it. 
You are not strict with him. You do not punish him. You do not command him. Because you know that gentleness is stronger than severity. That water is stronger than rock. That love is stronger than force. Very good. I praise you. But it is not perhaps a mistake on your part not to be strict with him? Not to punish him? Do you not chain him with your love? Do you not shame him daily with your goodness and patience and make it all still more difficult for him? Do you not compel this arrogant, spoiled boy to live in a hut with two old banana-eaters to whom even rice is a dainty, whose thoughts cannot be the same as his, whose hearts are old and quiet and beat differently from his? Is he not constrained and punished by all this? Siddhartha looked at the ground in perplexity. What do you think I should do? he asked softly. Vasudeva said, Take him into the town. Take him to his mother's house. There will still be servants there. Take him to them. And if they are no longer there, take him to a teacher. Not just for the sake of education, but so that he can meet other boys and girls and be in the world to which he belongs. Have you never thought about it? You can see into my heart, said Siddhartha sadly. I have often thought about it. But how will he? who is so hard-hearted, go on in this world? Will he not consider himself superior? Will he not lose himself in the pleasure and power? Will he not repeat all his father's mistakes? Will he not perhaps be quite lost in samsara? The ferryman smiled again. He touched Siddhartha's arm gently and asked, and said, Ask the river about it, my friend. Listen to it. Laugh about it. Do you then really think that you have committed your follies in order to spare your son then, to son them? Can you then protect your son from samsara? How? Through instruction, through prayers, through exhortation? My dear friend, have you forgotten that instructive story about Siddhartha, the Brahmin's son, which you once told me here? Who protected Siddhartha, the samana, from samsara, from sin, greed, and folly? Could his father's piety, his teacher's exhortations, his own knowledge, his own seeking protect him? Which father, which teacher could prevent him from living his own life, from soiling himself with life, from loading himself with sin, from swallowing the bitter drink himself, from finding his own path? Do you think, my dear friend, that anybody is spared this path? Perhaps your little son, because you would like to see him spared sorrow and pain and disillusionment. But if you were to die ten times for him, you would not alter his destiny in the slightest. Never had Vasudeva talked so much. Siddhartha thanked him in a friendly fashion. Went troubled to his hut, but could not sleep. Vasudeva had not told him anything that he had not already thought and known himself. But stronger than his knowledge was his love for the boy, his devotion, his fear of losing him. Had he ever lost his heart so to anybody so completely? Had he ever loved anybody so much, so blindly, so blindly, so painfully, so hopelessly, and yet so happily? Siddhartha could not take his friend's advice. He could not give up his son. He allowed the boy to command him to be disrespectful to him. He was silent and waited. He began daily the mute battle of friendliness and patience. Vasudeva was also silent and waited, friendly, understanding, forbearing. They were both masters of patience. Once, when the boy's face reminded him of Kamala, 
Siddhartha suddenly remembered something she had once said to him a long time ago. You cannot love, she had said to him, and he had agreed with her. He had compared himself with the star, and the other people with falling leaves, and yet he had felt some reproach in her words. It was true that he had never fully lost himself in another person, to such an extent as to forget himself. He had never undergone the follies of love for another person. He had never been able to do this, and it had then seemed to him that this was the biggest difference between him and the ordinary people. But now, since his son was there, he, Siddhartha, had become completely like one of the people, through sorrow, through loving. He was madly in love, a fool because of love. Now he also experienced belatedly, for once in his life, the strongest and strangest passion. He suffered tremendously through it, and yet was uplifted, in some way, renewed and richer. He felt indeed that his, this love, this blind love for his son, was a very human passion, that it was samsara, a troubled spring of deep water. At the same time, he felt that it was not worthless, that it was necessary, that it came from his own nature. This emotion, this pain, these false follies had also had to be experienced. In the meantime, his son let him commit his follies, let him strive, let him be humbled by his moods. There was nothing about this father that attracted him, and nothing that he feared. This father was a good man, a kind, gentle man, perhaps a pious man, perhaps a holy man. But all these were not qualities which could win the boy. This father who kept him in this wretched hut bored him, and when he answered his rudeness with a smile, every insult with friendliness, every naughtiness with kindness, that was the most hateful cunning of the old fat fox. The boy would have much preferred him to threaten him, to ill-treat him. A day came when young Siddhartha said that said what was in his mind and openly turned against his father. The latter had told him to go gather some twigs, but the boy did not leave the hut. He stood there, defiant and angry, stamped on the ground, clenched his fist and forcibly declared his hatred and contempt in his father's face. "'Bring your own twigs!' he shouted, foaming. I am not your servant. I know that you do not beat me. You dare not. I know, however, that you continually punish me and make me feel small with your piety and indulgence. You want me to become like you, so pious, so gentle, so wise, but just to spite you, I'd rather become a thief and a murderer and go to hell than be like you. I hate you. You are not my father, even if you have been my mother's lover a dozen times. Full of rage and misery, he found an outlet in a stream of wild and angry words of his father. Then the boy ran away and only returned late in the evening. The following morning he had disappeared, a small two-colored basket made of bast, in which the ferrymen kept the copper and silver coins, which they received as their payment, had also disappeared. The boat, too, had gone. Siddhartha saw it on the other side of the bank. The boy had run away. I must follow him, said Siddhartha, who had been in a great distress since the boy's hard words of the previous day. A child cannot go through the forest alone. He will come to some harm. We must make a raft, Vasudeva, in order to cross the river. Who will make a raft, said Vasudeva, in order to fetch our boat, which the boy took away. But let him go, my friend. He is not a child any more. He knows how to look after himself. He is seeking the way to the town, and he is right. Do not forget that. He is doing what you yourself have neglected to do. 
He is looking after himself. He is going his own way. Oh, said Arthur, I can see you are suffering, suffering pain over which one should laugh, over which you will soon laugh yourself. Siddhartha did not reply. He already held the hatchet in his hands and began to build a raft from bamboo, and Vasudeva helped him to bind the cane together with grass rope. Then they sailed across and were driven far out, but directed the raft upstream to the other bank. "'Why have you brought the hatchet with you?' said Siddhartha. Vasudeva said, "'It is possible that the oar of our boat is lost.' But Siddhartha knew what his friend was thinking. Probably that the boy would have thrown the oar away or broken it out of revenge and to prevent their following him. And indeed, there was no longer an oar in the boat. Vasudeva indicated the bottom of the boat and smiled at his friends as if to say, Do you not see what your son wishes to say? Do you not see that he does not wish to be followed? But he did not say it in words and started to make a new oar. Siddhartha took leave of him to, to look for the boy. Vasudeva did not hinder him. Siddhartha had been in the forest for a long time when the thought occurred to him that his search was useless. Either, he thought, the boy had long ago left the wood and reached the town, or, if he were still on the way, he would hide from the pursuer. And when he reflected further, he found that he was not troubled about his son, that inwardly he knew he had neither come to any harm nor was threatened with danger in the forest. Nevertheless, he went on steadily, no longer to save him, but with a desire perhaps to see him again and he walked up to the outskirts of the town. When he reached the wide road near the town, he stood still at the entrance to the beautiful pleasure garden that had once belonged to Kamala, where he had once seen her in a sedan chair for the first time. The past rose before his eyes. Once again he saw himself standing there, a young, bearded, naked Sabana, his hair full of dust. Siddhartha stood there a long time and looked through the open gate in the garden, he saw monks walking about under the beautiful trees. He stood there for a long time, thinking, seeing pictures, seeing the story of his life. He stood there a long time looking at the monks, saw in their place the young Siddhartha and Kamala walking beneath the tall trees. Clearly, he saw himself attended by Kamala and receiving her first kiss. He saw how he had arrogantly and contemptuously looked back on his Samana days, how he had proudly and eagerly begun his worldly life. He saw Kamaswami, the servants, the banquets, the dice players, the musicians. He saw Kamala Songbird in his cage. He lived it all over again, breathed samsara, was again old and tired, again felt nausea and the desire to die, again heard the holy om. After he had stood for a long time at the gate to the garden, Siddhartha realized that the desire that had driven him to this place was foolish, that he could not help his son, that he should not force himself on him. He felt a deep love for the runaway boy, like a wound, and yet felt at the same time that this wound was not intended to fester in him, but that it should heal. Because the wound did not heal during that hour, he was sad. In place of the goal which had brought him here after his son, there was only emptiness. Sadly, he sat down. He felt something die in his heart. He saw no more happiness, no goal. He sat there depressed and waited. He had learned this from the river, to wait, to have patience, to listen. He sat and listened in the dusty road, 
listened to his heart, which beat wearily and sadly and waited for a voice. He crouched there and listened for many hours, saw no more visions, sank into emptiness and let himself sink without seeing a way out. And when he felt the word, the wound smarting, he whispered the word Om, filled himself with Om. The monks in the garden saw him, and as he crouched there for many hours, and the dust collected on his gray hairs, one of the monks came towards him and placed two bananas in front of him. The old man did not see him. A hand touching his shoulder awakened him from his trance. He recognized this gentle, timid touch and recovered. He rose and greeted Vasudeva, who had followed him. When he saw Vasudeva's kind face, looked at his little laughter wrinkles into his bright eyes, he smiled also. He now saw the bananas, the, ban the bananas, the bananas lying near him. He picked them up, gave one to the ferryman and ate the other. Then he went silently with Vasudeva through the wood again, back to the ferry. Neither spoke of what had happened, neither mentioned the boy's name, neither spoke of his flight nor the, of the wound. Siddhartha went to his bed in the hut, and when Vasudeva went to him after a time to offer him some coconut milk, he found him asleep. Om. The wound smarted for a long time. Siddhartha took many travelers across the river who had a son or a daughter with them, and he could not see any of them without envying them, without thinking, so many people possess this very great happiness. Why not I? Even wicked people, thieves and robbers have children, love them, and are loved by them, except me. So childishly and illogically did he, he now reason. So much had he become like the ordinary people. He now regarded people in a different light than he had previously. Not very clever, not very proud, and therefore all the more warm, curious, and sympathetic. When he now took the usual kind of travelers across, businessmen, soldiers, and women, they no longer seemed alien to him as they once had. He did not understand or share their thoughts and views, but he shared with them life's urges and desires. Although he had reached a high stage of self-discipline and bore his last wound well, he now felt as if these ordinary people were his brothers. Their vanities, desires, and trivialities no longer seemed absurd to him. They had become understandable, lovable, and even worthy of respect. There was the blind love of, mo of a mother for her child, the blind foolish pride of the fond father, father for his only son, the blind eager strivings of a young vain woman for ornament, and the admiration of men. All these little simple foolish but tremendously strong, vital, passionate urges and desires no longer seemed trivial to Siddhartha. For their sake he saw people live and do great things, travel, conduct wars, suffer, and adore immensely, and he loved them for it. He saw life, vitality, the indestructible, and Brahman in all their desires and needs. These people were worthy of love and admiration in their blind loyalty, in their blind strength and tenacity, with the exception of one small thing, one tiny little thing, they lacked nothing that the sage and thinker had, and that was the consciousness of the unity of all life. And many a time Siddhartha even doubted whether this knowledge, this thought, was of such great value, whether it was not also perhaps the childish self-flattery of thinkers, who were perhaps only thinking children. The men of the world were equal to the thinkers in every other respect, and were often superior to them. 
just as animals in their tenacious undeviating actions in cases of necessity may often seem superior to human beings. Within Siddhartha there, were slow, there slowly grew and ripened the knowledge of what wisdom really was and the goal of his long seeking. It was nothing but a prepar preparation of the soul, a capacity, a secret art of thinking, feeling, and breathing thoughts of unity at every moment of life. This thought matured in him slowly, and it, had reflected, it was reflected in Vasudeva's old childlike face. Harmony, knowledge of the eternal perfection of the world, and unity. But the wound still smarted. Siddhartha thought yearningly and bitterly about his son, nursed his love and feeling of tenderness for him, let the pain gnaw at him. Underwent all the follies of love, the flame did not distinguish itself. One day, when the wound was smarting terribly, Siddhartha rode across the river, consumed by longing, and got out of the boat with the purpose of going to the town to seek his son. The river flowed softly and gently. It was in the dry season, but its voice rang out strangely. It was laughing. It was distinctly laughing. The river was laughing clearly and merrily at the old ferryman. Siddhartha stood still. He bent over the water in order to hear better. He saw his face reflected in the quietly moving water, and there was something in this reflection that reminded him of something he had forgotten. And when he reflected on it, he remembered. His face resembled that of another person, whom he had once known and loved and even feared. It resembled the face of his father, the Brahmin. He remembered how once, as a youth, he had compelled his father to let him go and join the ascetics, how he had taken leave of him, how he had gone and never returned. Had not his father also suffered the same pain, and he was now suffering for his son? Had not his father died long ago, alone, without having seen his son again? Did he not accept this, expect the same fate? Was it not a com comedy, a strange and stupid thing, this repetition, this course of events in a fateful circle? The river laughed. Yes, that was how it was. Everything that was not suffered to the end and finally concluded recurred and the same sorrows were undergone. Siddhartha climbed into the boat again and rode back to the hut, thinking of his father, thinking of his son, laughed at by the river, in conflict with himself, verging on despair, and no less inclined to laugh aloud at himself and the whole world. The wound still smarted. He still rebelled against his fate. There was still no serenity and conquest of his suffering, yet he was hopeful, and when he returned to the hut, he was filled with an unconquerable desire to confess to Vasudeva, to disclose everything, to, to, tell, to tell everything to the man who knew the art of listening. Vasudeva sat in the hut, weaving a basket. He no longer worked the ferry boat. His eyes were becoming weak, also his arms and hands, but unchanged and radiant were the happiness and the serene well-being in his face. Siddhartha sat down beside the old man and slowly began to speak. He told him now what he had never mentioned before, how he had gone to the town that time of, the smart, of his smarting wound, of his envy at the sight of happy fathers, of his knowledge of the folly of such feelings, of his hopeless struggle with himself. He mentioned everything. He could tell him everything, even the most painful things. He could disclose everything. He displayed his wound, told him of his flight that day, how he had rode across the river with the object of wandering into the town and how the river had laughed. 
As he went on speaking, and Vasudeva listened to him with a serene face, Siddhartha was more keenly aware than ever of Vasudeva's attentiveness. He felt his troubles, his anxieties, and his secret hopes flow across to him and then return again. Disclosing his wound to the listener was the same as bathing, in, bathing it in the river, until it became cool and one with the river. As he went on talking and confessing, Siddhartha felt more and more that this was no longer Vasudeva, no longer a man who was listening to him. He felt that this motionless listener was absorbing his confession, as a tree absorbs the rain, that this motionless man was the river itself, that he was God himself, that he was eternity himself. As Siddhartha stopped thinking about himself and his wound, this recognition of the change in Vasudeva possessed him, and the more he realized it, the less strange did he find it. The more did he realize that everything was natural and in order, that Vasudeva had long ago almost always been like that, only he did not quite recognize it. Indeed, he himself was hardly different from him. He felt that he now regarded Vasudeva as the people regarded the gods, and that this could not last. Inwardly, he began to take leave of Vasudeva. In the meantime, he went on talking. When he had finished talking, Vasudeva directed his somewhat weakened glance, glance at him. He did not speak, but his eyes, but his face silently radiated love and serenity, understanding and knowledge. He took Siddhartha's hand, led him to the seat on the riverbank, sat down beside him, and smiled at the river. You have heard it laugh, he said, but you have not heard everything. Let us listen. You will hear more. They listened. The many-voiced song of the river echoed softly. Siddhartha looked into the river and saw many pictures in the flowing water. He saw his father, lonely, mourning for his son. He saw himself, lonely, also with the bonds of longing for his faraway son. He saw his son, also lonely, the boy eagerly advancing along the burning path of life's desires, each one concentrating on his goal, each one obsessed by his goal, each one suffering. The river's voice was sorrowful. It sang with yearning and sadness, flowing towards its goal. Do you hear? asked Vasudeva's mute glance. Siddhartha nodded. Listen better, whispered Vasudeva. Siddhartha tried to listen better. The picture of his father, his own picture, and the picture of his son all flowed into each other. Kamala's picture also appeared and flowed on, and the picture of Govinda and others emerged and passed on. They all became part of the river. It was the goal of all of them, yearning, desiring, suffering, and the river's voice was full of longing, full of smarting woe, full of insatiable desire. The river flowed on towards its goal. Siddhartha saw the river hasten, made up of himself and his relatives and all the people he had ever seen. All the waves and water hastened, suffering, towards goals, many goals, to the waterfall, to the sea, to the current, to the ocean, and all goals were reached, and each one was succeeded by another. The water changed to vapor and rose, became rain and came down again, became spring, brook, and river, changed anew, flowed anew. But the yearning voice had all, had altered. It still echoed sorrowfully, searchingly, but other voices accompanied it. Voices of pleasure and sorrow, good and evil voices, laughing and lamenting voices, hundreds of voices, thousands of voices. Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening.
He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping voice, the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of the indignation and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways, and all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together was the stream of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, when he did not bind his soul to any one particular voice and absorb it in himself, but heard them all, the whole, the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, Om, perfection. Do you hear? asked Vasudeva's glance once again. Vasudeva's smile was radiant. It hovered brightly in all the wrinkles of his old face as the Om hovered over all the voices of the river. His smile was radiant as he looked at his friend, and now the same smile appeared on Siddhartha's face. His wound was healing. His pain was dispersing. His self had merged into the unity. From that hour Siddhartha ceased to fight against his destiny. There shone in his face the serenity of knowledge, of one who is no longer confronted with the conflict of desires, who has found salvation, who is in harmony with the stream of events, with the stream of life, full of sympathy and compassion, surrendering himself to the stream, belonging to the unity of all things. As Vasudeva rose from the seat on the river bank, when he looked into Siddhartha's eyes and saw the serenity of knowledge shining in them, he touched his shoulder gently in his kind, protective way and said, I have waited for this hour, my friend. Now that it has arrived, let me go. I have been Vasudeva, the ferryman, for a long time. Now it is over. Farewell, hut. Farewell, river. Farewell, Siddhartha. Siddhartha bowed low before the departing man. I knew it, he said softly. Are you going into the woods? Yes, I am going into the woods. I am going into the radi into the unity of all things, said Vasudeva, Vasudeva, radiant. And so he went away. Siddhartha watched him. With great joy and gravity he watched him, saw his steps full of peace, his face glowing, his form full of light. Govinda Govinda once spent a rest period with some other monks in the pleasure grove with Kamala, the courtesan, had once presented to the followers of Gautama. He had heard talk of an old ferryman who lived by the river a day's journey away, and whom many considered to be a sage. When Govinda moved on, he chose the path to the ferry, eager to see this ferryman, for although he had lived his life according to the rule and was also regarded with respect by the younger monks, for his age and modesty, there was still restlessness in his heart, and his seeking was unsatisfied. He arrived at the river and asked the old man to take him across. When they climbed out of the boat on the other side, he said to the old man, You have much kindness you show much kindness to the monks and pilgrims. 
you have taken many of us across. Are you not also a seeker of the right path? There was a smile in Siddhartha's old eyes, and he said, Do you call yourself a seeker, seeker O venerable one? You, who are already advanced in years and wear the robe of Gautama's monks. I am indeed old, said Govinda, but I have never ceased seeking. I will never cease seeking. That seems to be my destiny. It seems to me that you also have sought. Will you talk to me a little about it, my friend? Siddhartha said, What could I say to you that would be of value, except that perhaps you seek too much, that as a result of your seeking you cannot find? How is that? asked Govinda. When someone is seeking, said Siddhartha, it happens quite easily that he only sees the thing that he is seeking, that he is unable to find anything, unable to absorb anything, because he is only thinking of the thing he is seeking, because he has a goal, because he is obsessed with his goal. Seeking means to have a goal, but finding means to be free, to be receptive, to have no goal. You, O oh worthy one, are perhaps indeed a seeker, for in striving towards your goal you do not see many things that are under your nose. I do not yet quite understand, said Govinda. How do you mean? Siddhartha said, Once, O oh worthy one, many years ago, you came to this river and found a man sleeping there. You sat beside him to guard him while he slept, but you did not recognize the sleeping man, Govinda. Astonished and like one bewitched, the monk gazed at the ferryman. Are you Siddhartha? He asked in a timid voice. I do not recognize you this time, too. I am very pleased to see you again, Siddhartha, very pleased. You have changed very much, my friend, and have you become a ferryman now? Siddhartha laughed warmly. Yes, I have become a ferryman. Many people have to change a great deal and wear all sorts of clothes. I am one of those, my friend. You are very welcome, Govinda, and I invite you to stay the night in my hut. Govinda stayed the night in the hut and slept in the bed that had once been Vasudeva's. He asked the friend of his youth many questions, and Siddhartha had a great deal to tell him about his life. When it was time for Govinda to depart the following morning, he said with some hesitation, Before I go on my way, Siddhartha, I should like to ask you one more question. Have you a doctrine, belief? or knowledge which you uphold, which helps you to live and do right? Siddhartha said, You know, my friend, that even as a young man, when we lived with the aesthetics in the forest, I came to distrust doctrines and teachers and turn, turn my back on them. I am still of the same tur turn of mind, although I have since that time had many teachers. A beautiful courtesan was my teacher for a long time, and a rich merchant, and a dice player. On one occasion, one of the Buddha's wandering monks was my teacher. He halted in his pilgrimage to sit beside me when I fell asleep in the forest. I also learned something from him, and I am grateful to him. Very grateful. But most of all I have learned from this river and from my predecessor, Vasudeva. He was a simple man. man. He was not a thinker, but he realized the essential as well as Gautama. He was a holy man, a saint. Govinda said, It seems to, to me, Siddhartha, that you still like to jest a little. I believe you and know that you have not followed any teacher, but have you not yourself, if not a doctrine, certain thoughts? Have you not discovered certain knowledge yourself that has helped you to live? It would give me great pleasure if you would tell me something about this. Siddhartha said, Yes, I have had thoughts and knowledge here and there, sometimes for an hour or for a day, 
I have become aware of knowledge, just as one feels life in one's heart. I have had many thoughts, but it would be difficult for me to tell you about them. But this is one thought that has impressed me, Govinda. Wisdom is not communicable. The wisdom such a, which a wise man tries to communicate always sounds foolish. Are you jesting? asked Govinda. No, I am tell you, telling you what I have discovered. Knowledge can be communicated, but not wisdom. One can find it, live it, be fortified by it, do wonders through it, but one cannot communicate and teach it. I suspected this when I was still a youth, and it was this that drove me away from teachers. There is one thought I have had, Kvinda, which you will again think is a jest or folly. That is, in every truth the opposite is equally true. For example, a truth can only be expressed and enveloped in words if it is one-sided. Everything that is thought and expressed in words is one-sided, only half the truth. It all lacks totality, completeness, unity. When the illustrious Buddha taught about the world, he had to divide it into samsara and nirvana, into illusion and truth, into suffering and salvation. One cannot do otherwise. There is no other method for those who teach. But the world itself, being in and around us, is never one-sided. Never is a man or a deed wholly samsara or wholly nirvana. Never is a man wholly a saint or wholly a sinner. This only seems so because we suffer the illusion that time is something real. Time is not real, Govinda. I have realized this repeatedly. And if time is not real, then the dividing line that seems to lie between this world and eternity, between suffering and bliss, between good and evil, is also an illusion. How is that? asked Govinda, puzzled. Listen, my friend, I am a sinner, and you are a sinner, but some day the sinner will be Brahma again, will some day attain Nirvana, will some day become a Buddha. Now this some day is an is illusion. It is only a comparison. The sinner is not on the way to Buddha-like state. He is not evolving, although our thinking cannot conceive things otherwise. No, the potential Buddha already exists in, in the sinner. His future is already there. The potential hidden Buddha must be recognized in him, in you, in everybody. The world, Govinda, is not imperfect or slowly evolving along a, a long path to perfection. No, it is perfect at every moment. Every sin already carries grace within it. All small children are potential old men. All sucklings have death within them. All dying people, eternal life. It is not possible for one person to see how far another is on the way. The Buddha exists in the robber and dice player. The robber exists in the Brahmin. During deep meditation, it is possible to dispel time, to see simultaneously all the past, present, and future, and then everything is good, everything is perfect, everything is Brahman. Therefore, it seems to me that everything that exists is good, death as well as life, sin as well as holiness, wisdom as well as folly. Everything is necessary. Everything needs only my agreement, my assent, my loving understanding. Then all is well with me, and nothing can harm me. I learned through my body and soul that it was necessary for me to sin, that I needed lust, that I had to strive for property and experience nausea and the depths of despair in order to learn not to resist them, in order to learn to love the world and no longer compare it with some kind of desired imaginary world, some imaginary vision of perfection but to leave it as it is, to love it and be glad to belong to it. These, Govinda, are some of the thoughts that are in my mind. Siddhartha bent down, 
lifted a stone from the ground and held it in his hand. This, he said, handling it, is a stone, and within a certain length of time it will perhaps be soil, and from the soil it will become a plant, animal, or man. Previously, I should have said, this stone is just a stone. It has no value. It belongs to the world of Maya. But perhaps because within the cycle of change it can also become man and spirit. It is also of importance. That is what I should have thought. But now I think, this stone is stone. It is also animal, God, and Buddha. I do not respect and love it because it, is, it was one thing and will become something else, but because it has already long been everything and always is everything. I love it just because it is a stone. Because today and now it appears to me a stone. I see value and meaning in each one of its fine markings and cavities, in the yellow, in the gray, in the hardness, in the sound of it when I knock it, in the dryness or dampness of its surface. There are stones that feel like oil or soap, that look like leaves or sand, and each one is different and worships Om in its own way. Each one is Brahman. At the same time, it is very much stone, oily or soapy, and that is just what pleases me and seems wonderful and worthy of worship. But I will say no more about it. Words do not express thoughts very well. They always become a little different immediately they are expressed a little distorted, a little foolish, and yet it also pleases me and seems right that what is of value and wisdom to one man seems nonsense to another. Govinda had listened in silence. Why did you tell me about the stone? he asked hesitatingly after a pause. I did so unintentionally, but perhaps it illustrates that I just love the stone and the river and all these things that we see and from which we can learn. I can love a stone, Govinda, and a tree, or a piece of bark. These are things, and one can love things, but one cannot love words. Therefore teachings are of no, of no use to me. They have no hardness, no softness, no colors, no corners, no smell, no taste. They have nothing but words. Perhaps that is what prevents you from finding peace. Perhaps there are too many words for even salvation and virtue. Samsara and Nirvana are only words, Govinda. Nirvana is not a thing. There is only the word Nirvana. Govinda said, Nirvana is not only a word, my friend, it is a thought. Siddhartha continued, It may be a thought, but I must confess, my friend, that I do not differentiate very much between thoughts and words. Quite frankly, I do not attach great importance to thoughts either. I attach more importance to things. For example, there was a man at this ferry who was my predecessor and teacher. He was a holy man who for many years believed only in the river and nothing else. He noticed that the river's voice spoke to him. He learned from it. It educated and taught him. The river seemed like a god to him, and for many years he did not know that every wind, every cloud, every bird, every beetle is equally divine and knows and can teach just as well as the esteemed river. But when this holy man went off into the woods, he knew everything. He, more, he knew more than you and I, without teachers, without books, just because he believed in the river. Govinda said, But what you call thing, is it something real? Something intrinsic? Is it not only the illusion of Maya, only image and appearance? Your stone, your tree, are they real? This, does, this also does not trouble me much, said Siddhartha. If they are illusion, then I also am illusion and say that so they are always of the same nature as myself. It is that which makes them so lovable and venerable. That is why I can love them, and here is a doctrine at which you will laugh. 
It seems to me, Govinda, that love is the most important thing in the world. It may be important to great thinkers to examine the world, to explain and despise it, but I think it is only important to love the world, not to despise it, not for us to hate each other, but to be able to regard the world and ourselves and all beings with love, admiration, and respect. I understand that, said Govinda, but that is just what the illustrious one called illusion. He preached benevolence, forbearance, sympathy, patience, but not love. He forbade us to bind ourselves to earthly love. I know that, said Siddhartha, smiling radiantly. I know that, Govinda, and here we find ourselves within the maze of meanings, within the conflict of words, for I will not deny that my words about love are an apparent contradiction to the teachings of Gautama. That is just what I distrust words so much. For I know that this contradiction is an illusion. I know that I am at one with Gautama. How, indeed, could he not know love? He who has recognized all humanity's vanity and transitoriness, yet loves humanity so much that he has devoted a long life solely to help and teach people. Also with this great teacher, the thing of, to me is of greater importance than the words. His deeds and life are more important to me than his talk. The gesture of his hand is more important to me than his opinions. Not in speech or thought do I regard him as a great man, but in his deeds and life. The two old men were silent for a long time. Then, as Govinda was preparing to go, he said, I thank you, Siddhartha, for telling me something of your thoughts. Some of them are strange thoughts. I cannot grasp them all immediately. However, I thank you, and I wish you many peaceful days. Inwardly, however, he thought, Siddhartha is a strange man, and he expresses strange thoughts. His ideas seem crazy. How different do the illustrious one's doctrines sound? They are clear, straightforward, comprehensible. They contain nothing strange, wild, or laughable, but Siddhartha's hands and feet, his eyes, his brow, his breathing, his smile, his greeting, his gait, affect me differently from his thoughts. Never, since the time of our illustrious Gautama passed into Nirvana, have I ever met a man, with the exception of Siddhartha, about whom I felt, this is a holy man. His ideas may be strange, his words may sound foolish, but his glance and his hand, his skin and his hair all radiate a purity, peace, serenity, gentleness, and saintliness, which I have never seen in any man since the recent death of our illustrious teacher. While Govinda was thinking these thoughts and there was conflict in his heart, he again bowed to Siddhartha, full of affection towards him. He bowed low before the quietly seated man. Siddhartha, he said, we are now old men. We may never see each other again in this life. I can see, my dear friend, that you have found peace. I realize that I have not found it. Tell me one more word, my esteemed friend. Tell me something that I can conceive, something that I can understand. Give me something to help me on my way, Siddhartha. My path is often hard and dark. Siddhartha was silent and looked at him with his calm, peaceful smile. Govinda looked steadily in his face, with anxiety, with longing, Suffering, continual seeking, and continual failure were written in his look. Siddhartha saw it and smiled. Bend near to me, he whispered in Govinda's ear. Come, still nearer, quite close. Kiss me on the forehead, Govinda. Although surprised, Govinda was compelled by a great love and presentiment to obey him. He leaned close to him and touched his forehead with his lips. As he did this, something wonderful happened to him. While he was still dwelling on Siddhartha's strange words, while he strove in vain to dispel the conception of time, to imagine nirvana and samsara at one, while even a certain contempt for his 
friend's words conflicted with a tremendous love and esteem for him, this happened to him. He no longer saw the face of his friend Siddhartha. Instead, he saw other faces, many faces, a long series of faces, a, continu a continuous stream of faces, hundreds, thousands, which all came and disappeared and yet all seemed to be there at the same time, which all continually changed and renewed themselves, and which were yet all Siddhartha. He saw the face of a fish, of a carp, with tremendously painfully open mouth, a dying fish with dimmed eyes. He saw the face of a newly born child, red and full of wrinkles, ready to cry. He saw the face of a murderer, saw him plunge a knife into the body of a man. At the same mo moment he saw this criminal kneeling down, bound at his head cut off by an, ex an executioner. He saw the naked bodies of men and women in the postures and tra transports of passionate love. He saw corpses stretched out, still, cold, empty. He saw the heads of animals, boars, crocodiles, elephants, oxen, birds. He saw Krishna and Agni. He saw all these forms and faces in a thousand relationships to each other, all helping each other, loving, hating, destroying each other, and becoming newly born. Each one was mortal, a passionate, painful example of all that is transitory. Yet none of them died. They only changed, were always reborn, continually had a new face. Only time stood between one face and another, and all these forms and faces rested, flowed, reproduced, swam past, and merged into each other, and over all there was continually something thin, unreal, and yet existing, stretched across like thin glass or ice, like a transparent skin, shell, form, or mask of water, and this mask was Siddhartha's smiling face, which Govinda touched with his lips at that moment. And Govinda saw that this mask-like smile, the smile of unity over the flowing forms, the smile of simultaneousness over the thousands of births and death, the smile of Siddhartha, was exactly the same as the calm, delicate, impenetrable, perhaps gracious, perhaps mocking, wise, thousandfold smile of Gautama the Buddha, as he perceived it with awe a hundred times. It was in such a manner Govinda knew that the perfect one smiled. no longer knowing whether time existed, whether this display had lasted a second or a hundred years, whether there was a Siddhartha or a Gautama or self and others, wounded deeply by a divine arrow which gave him pleasure, deeply enchanted and exalted, Govinda stood yet a while bending over Siddhartha's peaceful face, which he had just kissed, which had just been the stage of all present and future forms. His countenance was unchanged, after the mirror of the thousandfold forms had disappeared from the surface. He smiled peacefully and gently, perhaps very graciously, perhaps very mockingly, exactly as the illustrious one had smiled. Govinda bowed low. Incontrollable tears trickled down his face. He was overwhelmed by a feeling of great love, of the most humble veneration. He bowed low, right down to the ground, in front of a man sitting there motionless, whose smile reminded him of everything that he had ever loved in his life of everything that he had ever been of value and holy in his life. The End